are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. Joining me as always, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. It's Tell the Truth Tuesday. And unfortunately, most of the truths that we have to tell today probably aren't the ones that fans necessarily want to hear, but need to hear because the Seahawks are three and eight for the first time since 1977. That's the last time that the Seahawks had this record after 11 games, their second season in existence, another ugly loss this time in Washington. We're going to be breaking down that defeat at FedEx Field and looking at what's next with the Seahawks now five games under 500, the season in peril, burning up into flames, however you want to put it. Uh, They're going to have to change their focal point a little bit, what they're going to be trying to do to try to finish strong, but also get ready for the 2022 season and what could be a potentially difficult offseason. So this is going to be a very jam-packed Tuesday episode coming off of last night's primetime defeat in Washington. Thanks for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen every day. We are free and available on all platforms. Now for your lead story here on Locked on Seahawks. As legendary coach Bill Parcells once famously said, you are what your record says you are. And the Seahawks, they are the second worst team in the NFC by themselves now at three and eight, losing their third consecutive game, their sixth loss in seven games Last night to the Washington football team, Russell Wilson tried to lead them back late, had a chance to tie the game with a two-point conversion, unfortunately get intercepted by Fuller in the end zone. The same stories, just a different day, that have ravaged this football team. Third down inefficiencies, struggles with moving the football, not sustaining drives, having their defense on the field for 40-plus minutes. Things that we've seen as trends all year long for this football team continued And now the Seahawks find themselves in a really bad spot historically. They have only had a 3-8 and record or worse five times in their existence, Rob. 1976 and 1977, their first two years in the league when they were an expansion team. 1992, when they had Dan McGuire and a bunch of other quarterbacks trying to get the job done and their offense is one of the worst I've ever seen. And 2008, the end of Mike Holmgren's reign, a bunch of injuries, a very old roster that was really struggling. It just It's crazy to think that this Seahawks team, with the talent that they have, is sitting in the same company as those four other teams. But that's where we're at. That's the reality. As Parcell said, you are what your record says you are. And the Seahawks are a bad football team at 3-8. and eight. Oh, there's no question about it, Corbin. They they are a bad football team. You know, just a, a week ago, of course, we had Thanksgiving, and there were, I'm sure, plenty of burnt turkeys out there across the entire country. And I don't know that any of those turkeys were as done as the Seahawks feel like they are right now. Um, you know, it, it's just been a, a, a horrifically bad season for Seattle. And obviously a huge part of that is the fact that they had injuries to the quarterback. They had injuries to the running back. They had injuries along the offensive line. And, and that's the biggest reason why their offense has struggled as much as it has. And it's put the defense in such a bad situation. Um, and the defense has actually played pretty good football over the last month or so. But you wouldn't know it. 
because of they they just simply lack the ability to stop teams on third down because they're just on the field twice or three times as many downs as their offense is on the field. Then, you know, it doesn't matter how talented or how tough you are, you're going to get fatigued. And, and when you get as, as exhausted as the Seahawks defense has to be at this point in the season, especially considering that most of their better players are veterans, then I think that it is fairly predictable that they've been as bad as they have over the last you know month or so of, of the season. Um, and, then, and you mentioned some of the, the clubs that the Seattle has had in the past over the last 45 years that have been as bad as, as this team is in, in terms of record. And, you know, let's go back to that last team, that, that 2008 team that, as you mentioned, Mike Holmgren's last season, uh, you know, that that was a year where Seneca Wallace had more starts than Matt or than than, than Matt Hasselbeck had that TJ Duckett, um, you know, had the, the, the most rushing touchdowns for the Seahawks. I mean, that was a horrifically bad Seahawks squad that that 1992 squad that was one of the worst in NFL history. And yet there was a positive Cortez Kennedy won an NFL defensive player of the year that year. I just struggled to find some of the positives of this season that we saw in prior years when the Seahawks struggled this much. And that to me is one of the most concerning things is that again, this is a veteran squad. This is not a team that has a lot of young talent and that that is young, like a DK Metcalf, for example, is coming off a game where he basically was an afterthought clearly from Seattle's strategy. And so that is one of the most frustrating things. It doesn't feel like this is a Seahawks team that's young and getting better. It feels like it's old and getting worse. Yeah, you compare this roster to those other four teams. Like I said, 2008, Matt Hasselbeck was nearing the end of his time in Seattle. That was an aging roster that had had major attrition over the previous couple years. They had been able to get back to the playoffs, but didn't make the deep Super Bowl run like they did in 2005 because the roster was getting older. They lost some key pieces in free agency. 1992, that team had no business being in contention despite how well Cortez Kennedy played all season long. The defense was okay on that 92 squad, but their offense, one of the worst I've ever seen. And then the teams in 76 and 77, obviously I was not around when those teams were playing, but it was an expansion team. They had a ton of holes. They were just trying to get started as a new NFL franchise. So the fact that this team that has an all-pro quarterback in Russell Wilson, an all-pro tackle in Dwayne Brown, you've got Bobby Wagner, Jamal Adams, DK Metcalf, Quandre Diggs, Tyler Lockett, I can keep naming the amount of talent that is on this roster. Yes, it's a veteran roster, but it's not like a lot of these guys are over the hill either. This team was expected to be in contention. They went 12-4 and a year ago, and most of that roster came back this season. Expectations were obviously very high going into this year, and yet here we are now. This truly is uncharted waters for Pete Carroll and company because they have been competitive throughout his entire time in Seattle. His first year, yeah, they went 7-9, and nine, but they won the division. They played well towards the end of the season. 2011, they missed the playoffs and went 7-9 seven and nine again, but mid-December, they were still in the hunt. They got to 7-7 seven and seven in mid-December and then lost their last two games, but the momentum was there for them to, the next year, get to the playoffs, then two years later, win their first Super Bowl. That was built, a lot of the momentum on that 2011 season when they were able to win a bunch of games in the second half. So 
every year that Pete Carroll has been on the sidelines, even that 2017 season, they missed the playoffs by one game. They had a chance to make the playoffs in week 17. They were still alive. So they have consistently been in the postseason. And we, even when they haven't been, they've been in the hunt. That is not going to be the case for this team, even though they're not mathematically eliminated. They just lost all three of their games in the month of November. They're going to go into December now playing meaningless football games in terms of playoff standing, even though they could win their next six and still have a chance to get in. Nothing we've seen suggests that that's going to happen. So this truly is foreign territory for the Seahawks team and for Pete Carroll. And you can just tell yesterday they're going to keep saying the right things, but you can tell Carroll and Wilson and Adams and Wagner, there truly is a feeling of despair and there's a feeling of being defeated now at this point. When you lose six out of seven games, they're just not used to that happening in Seattle. And so it's perplexing when you consider the talent. But the reality is that they're right now playing for pride. And I thought the way that Wilson said it yesterday fit it, be fit it best. They are obligated to keep playing hard. But basically he was saying that's what we have to play for now because the playoffs, they're less than 1% now. Their odds of being able to get to the postseason – Five games are 500. It just seems at this point that this season's officially reached dumpster fire status. And as we'll talk about in the next quarter, it's probably time to start focusing on what's to come in the future rather than just this season with the playoffs now out of the picture. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, that's really what it's going to come down to is you now have to evaluate who are the players that you want to keep on the roster, who are the coaches, who are the front office executives that you want to keep in town. Um, you know, I think that the conversation has completely changed here over the last month. There was a great deal of hope that Russell Wilson was going to be able to come in and, and change the season. And in fact, he has come in and cemented the season. He's played horrifically bad. Um, he might be an all pro in, uh, you know, in reputation. He has been a JV player in reality. And so that might sound harsh, but the numbers prove it out. Anybody who watched that game, not only against Washington, but previously against Arizona and Green Bay, if Seattle has even reasonably competent play at the quarterback position, then they are in those football games. And they were in them. They just weren't ahead of any of those games. I mean, it was pretty pathetic football you know, frankly. And so uh, I think that, um, you know, you can always give the quarterback too much credit. You can give the quarterback too much blame, but when he is among the highest played players in the, in all the NFL and, and certainly the highest paid player on your own roster and the way that your entire salary cap is, has been fixed, uh, then yeah, then the, all the blame I think has to go on to the player who is being paid the most. And unfortunately, Russell Wilson, Heavy is the head that wears the crown, and you're wearing that crown right now. No question about it. We're going to look at some of the young players on the Seahawks roster that now need to be under evaluation for the rest of the season to see where they fit in in 2022. But first, a word from our sponsors. In life, we're all bound for different things. With Beachbound.com Vacations, you could be bound for adventure, bound for passion, bound for discovery, or bound for togetherness, bound for immersion, bound for rejuvenation, or you may be bound for encountering the unexpected. Personally, when I'm in a beach resort, I'm bound to end up at the poolside bar or maybe creating my own taco fight. 
As long as I'm in good view with a good drink in my hand, I'm as happy as I can be. With Beachbound.com, you can find the perfect beach vacation for you no matter what you're looking for. What are you bound for? Visit Beachbound.com today. I'd like to be at a beach right now after watching that football game yesterday. Anything to forget about what I saw at FedEx Field. Anyway, we're going to be breaking down that debacle of a football game later in the show. But let's look towards the future because that's where the Seahawks are at. As we were just discussing, they're 3-8. and eight. They still mathematically are in the playoff hunt, but barely. They are on life support in terms of the postseason. They would have to win out and get some help, especially with the fact that they've got a horrific conference record. They've lost now games to Washington, Minnesota, and uh, New Orleans. All three of those teams have beaten them head-to-head and have the tiebreaker. So everything is working against the Seahawks at this point, and again, You can't expect they're going to win their last six games with what we have seen on the field, especially last night. So the focus now has to shift. Even though the Seahawks are going to be doing everything they can to win, they want to finish strong and get this season rolling. If they can get close to 500, get some momentum for next year. But I feel like this is one of those cases when you're a three and eight team, especially the offseason drama that we saw unfold this past spring. Everybody is under the microscope right now. Everyone on the coaching staff, everybody on the roster, they are playing for a spot on this football team next year. And I think it's especially pivotal, and we hit on this a little bit last week because this is where things were heading. It's where things have been trending for weeks. But the Seahawks are now in a position where they need to be letting some of these young guys go so they can see where they fit into their future plans. And I, I want to start at the tackle positions because we talked about this in our mailbag a week ago. I feel like now we have reached the point where you know Dwayne Brown and Brandon Shell are both going to be free agents. Brown is going to be 37 next year. He's had a really tough season. Brandon Shell has been okay, but he hasn't played as well as he did last year. I don't think he's done enough to justify another contract. I know Russell Wilson's going to want the best blockers in front of him, but it feels to me like this is a case where you have to see what Stone Forsythe and Jake Kieran can do. Two rookie tackles that maybe can be part of your future. You've got some opponents coming up that don't necessarily have great pass rushes either. The the Texans, uh, the Detroit Lions, teams like that. Those would be good games. I'm not saying you start Forsythe and Kieran, but... Mix them in. They've already started to do that a little bit with Curran because Shell's been banged up. But I think now you start to get Stone Forsyth and Jake Curran some reps in games because you're not going to the playoffs. This is a great way to assess where those guys are at and give them some reps to be able to develop. They're not going to be able to do that standing on the sideline. That's a really good point. You know, I think that this upcoming game against San Francisco 49ers, you are going up against a defense that's playing really good football right now. Um, you know, and they are ascending. Um, and so maybe this isn't the game to start those young offensive tackles. But I think against the Houston Texans, the Detroit Lions, as you just mentioned, Corbin, I mean, those are two of the weaker pass rushers. Um, and, and so perhaps you, that would give you quite the opportunity to assess your young offensive tackles. And, and I'll just say it like this. If Seattle does not put those two young offensive tackles onto the field, then that's an indictment in itself. Um, that That is stating that the Seattle has not seen much in practice 
from these two young players. And so given how much Seattle has struggled, frankly, in being able to assess its own talent, taking basically two months into the season before they started featuring an obvious difference maker like a Gerald Everett. Um, the fact that DK Metcalf, arguably the most gifted wide receiver in all of the NFL, doesn't get a single look until the third quarter of this latest game and several other games this, so far this season in which he has not been featured, then I, I think that it's, it's questionable whether or not Seattle can assess its own talent, frankly, at, at this point. But yeah, I do think that it is critical. If the, the current coaching staff is going to be in place, the current scouting staff all the way up to the front office is going to be in place, then yeah, Seattle should be evaluating their young talent. And I think that it is important to assess their young offensive tackles considering how little the two rookies, Stone Forsyth and Jake Curran, as you mentioned, have not, been, have not had opportunities so far this season. And I think at the skill positions, honestly, when I look at Seattle's roster, it's weird saying this because they do have some veterans like Bobby Wagner on defense that are getting older, but the defense has been playing really good football for the most part for well over a month. It seems like they have the pieces on that side of the ball, and they've got some young guys like Jordan Brooks and Daryl Taylor that are playing a lot of snaps. I feel like that these last six games – are more on the offensive coaching staff and for the scouting department, your front office evaluating offensive players because we haven't seen the youth movement on that side of the ball. D. Eskridge has hardly played, did have a catch against Washington last night, but the other target that was thrown to him, Russell Wilson, threw way behind him. Lucky it wasn't intercepted, one of those errant throws that he had. They haven't been able to get Eskridge involved. He missed seven games with a concussion. These last six games are huge for him. You want to see this second round pick get a lot of touches. You want to emphasize getting him involved in the ground game on bubble screens, find ways to use his unique skill set that's different than Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf. So I think these next six games are big for him. And in the backfield, you don't know if Chris Carson is going to play again. You don't know if Rashad Penny is in your plans. I would doubt they're going to re-sign him at this point, but he is going to be cheap. Maybe you could keep a one-year flyer on him if you really wanted to, but there's a lot of uncertainty at that position. Alex Collins has been solid, but is he your long-term guy at that position? So to me, DJ Dallas and Josh Johnson, who didn't get any offensive snaps in his debut last night, I would like to see those two backs get more opportunities these last six games and see if you can find a back or two that can cement their status as being one of your top backs in 2022. And Colby Parkinson as well. I mean, I can keep going on offense. There are a number of young guys that – they just haven't given many opportunities to, and you would like to see them let those players off their leash a little bit and see what they can do with extended action and more opportunities to get the football in their hands and see if these guys can get some momentum going into 2022 and, and be factors next year. I 100% agree with you. Um, you know, you mentioned a lot of names right there. I'm going to mention a couple other ones. And Ethan Post and Kyle Fuller, step up, gentlemen, or step out. I think that the Seahawks have to figure out whether or not they are going to be members of your team moving forward. Certainly, I have not seen reliable starting caliber play from either of them at this point. And, you know, that was one of the reasons why I was among those who was kind of championing this past year's interior offensive line class as being a historic group. And 
you know, I, I was disappointed when, when Seattle did not take advantage of that. This is a pretty decent interior offensive line class coming up as well. It's not nearly as good at the center position in 2022 that was in 2021. But I think it is all the more obvious how much of a concern that it is for the Seahawks. Um, and so I would mention those two interior offensive linemen. I would uh, reiterate what you just said about D. Eskridge. I mean, the few opportunities that we've seen from him, he has shown some of the athletic ability. He has not shown the you know cognitive uh, ability that you're looking for. I mean, that was a first down that he should have had until he yeah. ran out of bounds a yard short. He has to have a better awareness of where he is on the field if you are expecting him to be a dynamic receiver and a dynamic returner for your football team. Um, and then, as you mentioned, with the, at the running back position, I mean, Alex, Coll Alex Collins with his footwork, I mean, he is a highlight reel winning to happen. But at the same time, he has struggled with injuries himself, has previously struggled with ball security. The lack of consistent physicality ha has been a concern. Um, the way that DJ Dallas was bowled over when he was attempting to play in pass protection. I mean, give him credit for, for some of the big plays he's made as a runner and receiver, but I think it's been pretty clear why Seattle has preferred Travis Homer as being their third down back because of the way that he is a better, more reliable player in, in pass protection so far. If you want to get on the field, you got to be able to pass protect at the running back position. That's just the reality of today's game. And again, this is not a dynamic class at running back either. So all the more critical that Seattle figures out what they've got at those positions before they move forward. On the defensive side of the ball, like you said, I don't see as many young players, and this is more of an indictment, somewhat as an indictment on the way the Seahawks have drafted, but also they have had more young guys that have been featured anyway. Like I said, Jordan Brooks and Daryl Taylor are playing a lot of snaps already, and so that changes things a little bit compared to the offense. But Alton Robinson, I think you got to get him more opportunities, maybe start him at this point. Carlos Dunlap has had a very disappointing season. He's not getting any younger He's probably not a part of your future plans beyond this season, to be quite frank. So see what Alton Robinson can do with more opportunities. And I'm going to throw the name LJ Collier out there because I didn't think he played well last night in his limited opportunities, but at least try to see if you can get him some snaps and get some momentum going because maybe then you can move him in the offseason. Right now, you're not going to be able to do anything but release him. And so that might be something where you're just trying to set up some trade value or maybe the light switch comes on and he has a strong finish. And then maybe in 2022, LJ Collier returns to the rotation, but you're never going to know if he can do that if he's not getting snaps. And so I think that those two guys, these last six games are going to be very important for too, especially considering the inconsistencies that they've had with their pass rush this year. Yeah. Again, I agree 100% with you. I mean, I, you know, I, I believe that Carlos Dunlap was a, played a critical role in Seattle's defense turning around a year ago. I think that he's basically been a ghost so far this season, partially yeah. his fault, partially the fact that Seattle just hasn't used him very well. They've been asking him to drop into coverage, something that he wasn't asked to do even way back in the day in Florida. Um, you know, and, and so I, I really think that that's been a mismanagement of his skill set. But at this stage of his career, at this stage of the Seahawks season, then yeah, I, I don't want to see a lot of Carlos Dunlap. I don't want to see a lot of Kerry Hyder. I, frankly, I don't want to see a lot of Benson Mayoa. I want to see an awful lot of Daryl Taylor, awful lot of Alton Robinson. Um, I, I think the Al Woods has been arguably Seattle's most consistent among uh, among the defensive line, and that is not a compliment. 
Uh, but at the same time, I want to see more of Brian Monet. I want to see Puna Ford justify the contract that he got. Uh, you know, I, I want to see a lot of Seattle's young talent be able to step up. And and that's where, as we get a little bit into the, the next segment, Corbin, I am looking forward to being able to kind of highlight that there was some intriguing play, especially on the Seattle's defensive side of the ball, with a couple of the young players who I do believe can be superstars for this defense moving forward. Yeah, it's time for us to break down this game. Tell the Truth Tuesday. A lot of truths that fans won't necessarily be excited about hearing, but when you lose 17-15 in Washington, the offense has another really rough game. That's just the reality of the situation. So we're going to get to our takeaways here in a moment. Bet Online has you covered all season more props, odds, and lines than ever before as football season continues to march towards the playoffs. Bet Online remains your top spot for all the sports action this season. Head to our new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use the promo code Locked On to receive your bonus. From basketball, football, NHL, boxing, and UFC, right to your favorite Vegas casino games. Don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for the 2021 season. Bet Online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all of your favorite sports. Bet Online, where the game starts. So the Seahawks now sitting at 3-8. and eight. They're still in last place in the NFC West, just a little bit further behind the San Francisco 49ers than they already were in the cellar. Second worst record in the NFC, as we talked about in the first quarter, fifth time in their entire franchise history they've started with three or less wins in the first 11 games. It was just a really disappointing effort, but really shouldn't be one that we are surprised by at this point. Because once you've gotten this deep into a season, you're continuing to have the same problems that are costing you games. You come to the realization that this is no longer uncharacteristic. When it's happening this long, this is what your football team is. And the Seahawks just haven't been very good this year. They've been competitive enough, but they haven't been able to finish games. And they've just made too many mistakes that are critical to winning football games. And that's why they're at where they're at. Let's talk the good, the bad, the ugly. I, I will say this. You lose by two points. You only gave up 17. I think there's a lot of positives to talk about on the defensive side of the football Rasheem Green, big fella, 18-plus miles per hour returning a blocked field goal, which, by the way, he's the one that blocked the field goal and then recovered it. It was an extra point, returned it over 70 yards to the house. It looked like a running back returning the ball, and that ended up tying the game 9-9 going into halftime. Momentum was all on Washington's side, and, and that particular play – Kind of swung the momentum a little bit back to Seattle's sideline. They weren't able to capitalize off that coming out of the half. But really, Rasheem Green has quietly had a very solid season. Maybe doesn't show up with the sack numbers, but it feels like every game he's been making a splashy play or two. And that's one you just don't see often. So he's maybe a guy that's now played himself into a position. Maybe Seattle wants to bring him back next season on a multi-year contract. He's been that effective, and he's been that versatile for him. He really has. I mean, he took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, if not for the fact that Seattle has struggled to have any kind of ace uh, on their defensive line to really, uh, you know, be kind of a headliner, then I think that Rasheem Green has basically kind of ascended into that role. And just imagine if Seattle did have a difference maker, what a complimentary player that a play, that guy like Rasheem Green, with his ability to play inside and out, be able to make plays against the run, against the pass, against special teams as well. 
Um, this is the, the talent that had me and obviously the Seahawks so excited when they drafted him as a 20-year-old kid out of USC a couple of years ago. I mean, this is still an ascending player. He remains a younger player than, than some of Seattle's uh, you know, draft picks that they've made along the defensive line since then, including the aforementioned LJ Collier. And so I agree with you. I think that Rasheem Green is actually going to get a little bit of interest uh, on the free agent market should teams out there be, be willing to look past the statistics and watch a little bit of game tape. He's been one of the guys who's been able to win a few one-on-one -on -one matchups. And I love the fact that you mentioned that he did make the block as well as scoop and score. I mean, that was just a terrific example of his spatial awareness of his getting his hands up, being able to collect the ball, and then just simply being a great athlete for a man of his size to be able to run away uh, from the you know Washington special teams unit at that point. Let's focus the, our attention on, on some of the Seattle's other defenders who also made excuse me some splashy plays. And I, I have been as critical about Jordan Brooks as I think many people have. Um, you know, and a lot of times this season, it's been very much warranted. I mean, he is clearly not KJ Wright, at least not yet, when it comes to his awareness or lack of awareness in, ter in terms of the screen game. But there were some big hits that he applied in this game, some very impressive open field tackles. He did show greater awareness in the screen game and of draws and things of that nature. Some of those plays at the linebacker position where it's more about your mind than it is about your speed and your physicality. To me, he is a young player who is ascending. So between Green, between Brooks, a couple of splashy plays from Jamal Adams, who should be playing well considering his contract, to me, there were some pretty intriguing plays from a defense that, frankly, I'm not sure how they even finished that game, Corbin, considering how much they were on the field. 41-plus minutes on the field on defense, and yet – they gave up 17 points, and I'm glad he mentioned Jamal Adams. To me, he was Seattle's best player on either side of the football yesterday. Had his second interception of the season, which was created by Quandre Diggs. Quandre Diggs just continues to play at an all-pro level, smacking the tight end, Logan Thomas, and Bobby Wagner was the one that got a hand on the football, tipped the ball up, and then Jamal Adams came in and got the pick. But Adams also had that huge play towards the end of regulation against Logan Thomas, where he had tight coverage on him, and Thomas was not able to hold on to the football in the end zone on fourth and goal. And that is what gave Russell Wilson the chance to go down and try to tie the game to begin with. The game would have been over if that ball's caught. So I thought Jamal Adams was everywhere yesterday playing outstanding football. And on offense, there's not a lot of positives. But I'm, I will say this. My halftime observations piece yesterday on Seahawk Maven – I was praising Russell Wilson because he made some really nice deep throws in the first half. I thought he looked more like vintage Russell Wilson in the first two quarters. And with without Alex Collins' fumble that happened late in the second quarter in Washington territory, there's a good chance that the Seahawks go down and score on that drive because Wilson was humming. Unfortunately, though, as we saw in the second half, he was not able to maintain that, and he reverted back to how he played in Green Bay and against Arizona, and the offense just couldn't get anything moving for most of the second half. Yeah, that's the thing. If, we, if we're going to focus in on, on some of the bad, I think that we have to focus in on, on Russell Wilson. Maybe we should even save him till the ugly. 
um, because uh, while he did have some impressive plays at times, you're not play, you're not paying him as much as Seattle is paying him to be good at times. You, you want him to be consistent. And, you know, that's the thing is that one of the areas in which Seattle, I think, has been very consistent so far this season has been on special teams. And so that's why it was a shocker to me. The Nick Ballore and, and Seattle special teams unit was called for the illegal formation penalty on what should have been an exquisite play to be able to recover the, the onside kick here with just a couple of seconds left in the game. Now, I'm not saying that the Seahawks would have been able to win that football game, but damn it, that was an exciting moment in an otherwise very <laughs> ugly game. And and for Gavin Heslop in his first game to be uh, to be made active, to be able to recover that ball, just considering how well that Nick Ballore specifically has paid, played for Seattle on special teams especially, but um, in basically all manners of the field, when he's been asked to play fullback, when certainly when he's been asked to play linebacker, He's been one of Seattle's better players as well. So to me, that was one of the the, the bad uh, of the game for Seattle, besides just the, the final score as well. Uh, to me, on the offensive side of the ball, I'm, I'm saving number three for the last segment like you referenced there because I thought he was atrocious in the second half for the most part. But for the bad, I just I don't understand why DK Metcalf was not targeted until the tail end of the third quarter and didn't have a catch until midway through the fourth quarter. That should never happen. As an offensive coordinator, Shane Waldron, and as a quarterback, Russell Wilson, there is no excuse for DK Metcalf not having the football in his hands. you got to get the ball to your playmakers. And if they're double covering him, you can still find ways to get the football to him. Run some quick screens. Run some slants, use some motion with him, and try to get him in a position where he can win off the line of scrimmage. That way, there are ways you can scheme to get the football to him and get him involved, and yet it didn't seem like they did that. And Wilson was trying to say, well, we were, and it just wasn't there. I can't buy that in almost three-quarters of play against a defense that has given up a ton of yardage to receivers this year. Washington didn't just suddenly become the Legion of Boom overnight. It didn't happen. This is a secondary that can be exploited. And so I just, I couldn't believe that Metcalf didn't have a target till late in the third quarter. And I was just sitting there wondering, what are you doing? It, it just didn't add up. And there were clearly times he was open and Russell Wilson just didn't attempt to get the football to him. And you can always do that hindsight stuff watching film, but that left me scratching my head. And also the fact that Taylor Heineke looked like he was covered in oil and the Seahawks could not finish sacks in this game. Um, there was one Benson Mayoa had him lined up and completely whiffed on. You know, this is already not a great pass rushing team. And then you get several opportunities to bring down the QB in the backfield and you can't convert on most of them. To me, that was the one big downside of their defensive performance yesterday that ended up extending drives. Two quarterback hits in, in 43 uh, different opportunities, I'm sorry, 37, 35 passing opportunities, 43 rushes uh, by Washington. I mean, they, they just controlled the clock the entire game, and yet Seattle had two quarterback hits. Washington had 10, uh, you know, I mean, and, and didn't have their the two dominant first-round pass rushers. Uh, you know, so to me, that that was one of the the ugly things uh, about this game, or bad things. Say whatever you want, um, but just you know, kind of mind-numbingly bad. You know, frankly, for, from a Seattle perspective, um, the, the fact that, that Seattle ran the ball a total of twelve times. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's my public school math here being 
put on display, but 12 times in four quarters, that's an average of three attempts per quarter running the football. I mean, my goodness, that is, that is just truly a, a, a lack of commitment to the running game. And, and considering that is one of the things that Pete Carroll preached all off season long in, in Seattle's inability to run the football with any type of consistency, any type of want to, it is just horrifically bad. Um, embarrassingly bad. And then you mentioned with, with DK Metcalf, you know, Corbin, I, I watched a little bit of the San Francisco 49ers uh, game this past week. And, and I saw Debo Samuel, one of the, one of the, my favorite players in all of the NFL to watch just because of the fact that he is as physical uh, as he is, but he's not six, four, he's not 230 pounds. He doesn't run a four, three, the way that DK Metcalf does. And so considering how creative the 49ers use Debo Samuel and the lack of creativity that the Seahawks use with, again, the receiver who I at least believe is very much in contention to be the most physically gifted wide receiver in the NFL, the most physically gifted wide receiver in this franchise's history, and Seattle cannot manufacture a touch for him, to me, again, that's a fireable offense. Yeah, that really goes back to the offensive coordinator. You got to find ways to scheme your receiver open. Obviously, Wilson could have thrown the ball to him some and chose not to, uh, but it just doesn't seem like they are finding creative ways to be able to get the ball in his hands early. And this has happened a couple times this year where he's gone long stretches where they haven't targeted him, and he's just too darn good of a player for that to be happening. And you can't just say, oh, defense are taking him away. Then find ways to get him involved. If you're a quality coordinator – just too good of a playmaker. You can't have that happening. As far as the ugly goes, I'm going to combine these two together real quick, but I mentioned Russell Wilson's play in the second half. The Seahawks had five drives from the end of the second quarter to the beginning of the fourth quarter, five straight drives that they went three and out. And there were numerous plays that Russell Wilson couldn't get on top of the football and airmailed throws. He had a couple times he did that to Gerald Everett in this game alone. Then there were a couple plays where he got outside of the pocket and then he made ill-advised decisions when he should have just thrown the ball away. One of them should have been picked off by Cameron Curl, and luckily he dropped it. But it was an ill-advised throw across his body. I mean, these are the types of plays a 10th-year veteran should not be making. I don't care if he missed four weeks out injured. He's played enough football. He should not be making those type of throws, making those poor decisions. So I'm putting the onus on him for this particular game, having that prolonged stretch where they couldn't move the ball at all, there were prime opportunities to get first downs, and he either wasn't getting the ball to his receivers or he was making the wrong decisions. And you just can't have that from a quarterback that's making $35 million per year. He has got to play much, much better. And when you have a quarterback playing that poorly, it's really hard to win in this league. It really is. And so that that's one of the things that I kind of keep coming back to is, again, I, I don't want to put all the blame on Russell Wilson. I mean, yeah. I when when Seattle drafted him, um, I, I was proud of the fact that, that I was among the very first to say this guy is going to be an absolute superstar in this league. Uh, you know, and and I I love the fact that he has been able to do so. But at the same time, he is playing really bad football right now. And I've said this before, I said it for the last three weeks running now. This is not a team that is called the Russell Wilsons. It is not a team that is called the Pete Carrolls. It's the Seattle Seahawks. And so the quarterback 
the head coach have got to get it figured out. They have to be more loyal to the franchise than they are to their own quarterback, to their own head coach, or to either of their two egos. And so if there has to be a change at one of those two positions to wake up the rest of this 53-man roster, then that's what you have to do. And I don't know that there is anybody on this, uh, you know, in this franchise that has the courage to do so. That's going to be a fascinating uh, conversation as we go through these six, uh, these upcoming six games. But if the Seahawks finish with six consecutive losses, then it might just make its decision in its own. Well, if that happens, I think you're going to see the entire cupboard completely cleaned. I think they'll find ways to win at least a few of these remaining six games. But if they if they don't win another game the rest of this year, then I think you reach fire sale status. But hopefully we won't have to approach that topic. But the way that they're playing right now, you can't rule anything out. Thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen every day. Now make your second listen in the Locked On Bets podcast, your daily one-stop shop. For all your gambling needs, Locked On Bets is hosted by your boy Q and is hosted by your boy Q with expert analysis and insight from Lee Sterling. You can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Make sure to check out the Locked On Seahawks podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the all new Odyssey app. That's A U D. A-C-Y. Coming up on our Wednesday show, we're going to be back to our regular programming. Got another divisional game coming up against the 49ers in week 13. We'll be revisiting key matchups to watch as these two bitter rivals get together at Lumen Field. You don't want to miss it. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Go Hawks.